Welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree. This is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirits.co.uk. In this episode, I speak with Ben Williams, who is a, a scholar and practitioner of Tantra, and he teaches at Naropa in, um, University uh, in America. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, it's about awakening, um, and uh, I won't say much more. Just get into it. So, Ben Williams, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. Thanks. Good to be with you. Yeah. You too. Um, so we were broadly gonna gonna talk about um the relationship between Shiva and Shakti in uh classical Indian Tantra. Um but before we we launch into that, please could you say just a little bit about who you are um you know in relation to this work, um, just so people can get get an idea of feel for who you are, please. Thanks. Sure. Yeah, yeah, happy to. So currently, I'm an assistant professor of Hinduism and yoga studies at Naropa University. And Naropa is a liberal arts college that's um, Buddhist inspired, and it's based in Boulder, Colorado. And I have a PhD in Indian philosophy and Indian religions. Um, I did a master's in Hindu studies before that, and a BA in religious studies. And so broadly speaking, my area of expertise is the history of religions in South Asia. Um, more specifically, I focused in my doctoral research on um, tantric traditions or the history of Shaivism or tantric forms of Shaivism. And that includes traditions that are dedicated or center on goddesses, so Shakta traditions. Um, and I specifically focused on um, Abhinava Gupta, who is a pretty well-known um, <laughs> within, you know, people who are aware of these traditions, uh, philosopher, literary theorist, and kind of tantric master. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, I do have a background of being a part of community uh, that in which some of the teachings of the traditions that I study are, are practiced and are part of the kind of uh, culture and, and philosophy of the community. So I do have that kind of side to me as a scholar practitioner. Um, and that definitely informs my work and my understanding. And uh, I think that's a, that's a short version. <laughs> okay, yeah, thanks. So I think being a, being a scholar slash practitioner is, um, is a really, that's a really great thing because um, you can you can you've got this kind of dual perspective from the inside and the outside um, of a tradition and uh, you know uh, one without the other uh, can become a little lopsided. So if one was only a scholar, um, then you're sort of studying something from the outside and not necessarily having the first person experiences that you're describing or researching. Um, Whereas if you, uh, if one was just a practitioner, then you find it difficult to get outside of your tradition and think critically about it. And you can end up with a bit of group think or uh, sort of literal practicing um, without questioning it. And uh, you, you can get some kind of ossified traditional stuff that you just keep doing and no one understands why they're doing it because people haven't stepped outside to look at it. So. You know, I, I think a scholar practitioner's um, 
you know what a wonderful thing um and uh, it's it yeah it's i think it's relatively rare to to meet people or encounter people that have got a very um they've gone deep in both of those routes which um as far as i understand from what i've learned about you um in preparation for this talk you've you've done both of those those things i've tried to you know that's definitely been the spirit of my approach to um developing in both of those realms you know um i have noticed sometimes there's a leaning <laughs> one way or the other even for people who are you know aspiring to be scholar practitioners that really it, sometimes one of those paradigms kind of is dominant so to speak and it, it i just want to have a little humility it's 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 really i agree it's brilliant it's important work and it's ex really difficult to find a balance um and to find you know to find a creative dynamic balance where it's not slightly lopsided yeah. and there's there's something <clears throat> there i i sense an incredible potential in that in terms of <clears throat> reimagining tradition actually which we could go into a little if you like but yeah. yeah yeah well that's like actually one of the last questions i wanted to ask was uh we could just kind of put a flag in it for for later is is how has tantra evolved since its beginnings 1500 years ago roughly you know <laughs> that's the it would be because this this you know my my podcast is about how spiritual practice is evolving and has evolved um, and uh you know embracing that and that that been a been a good thing um yeah and so uh, you know the one one thing i think we ought to do at the beginning um because when i talk to people about tantra and tantric practice um they always think that i'm talking about sex and um i thought we'd just get the sex talk out the way <laughs> that um there's this thing called neo tantra it's kind of classical tantra neo tantra and neo tantra sort of owes its origins to you people like osho and adida and probably you know people before that sort of 60s uh, and onwards and um a, a lot of it is um sexual practices and uh in classical tantra my understanding of it is that there, there were some sexual practices but it's a very small part of, a, of an enormous tradition that most of it is not really to do with with sex but nowadays if you mention tantra people always think you're talking about sexual practices and just the, the last thing to say about that is that um you know the the, the, the neo tantra is just a distinct thing it's sort of become its own new religious movement kind of thing a little bit like harry krishna's or something like that kind of um spawned out of uh, the hindu tradition and um that you know as in its own it is it's its own thing and um there's nothing wrong with that but confusing com that with the kind of tantra that we're going to be talking about uh isn't isn't helpful um and you know a lot of um tantric sexual practices i very much enjoy myself so you know it's not i'm not uh, you know, i think people that are into classical down uh, tantra can kind of poo poo the neo tantra a little bit and uh, i don't necessarily want to do that here but just to make those distinctions yeah, very clear summary. Um, I think that's a really important thing to not conflate. And it's partly because 
the colloquial meaning of Tantra for most people is sacred sexuality and the types of um, movements and communities that are engaged in that and the types of narratives that surround that as well in terms of um, a kind of liberation from one's own sexual oppression <laughs> and tied to like, you know, whatever we've received in our notions around sexuality. And I think that classical Tantra is a, is a completely different beast. And so often this creates a smoke screen and it doesn't allow us to appreciate classical Tantra. And so I actually describe it in my Hindu Tantra class as like a pink smoke screen, <laughs> right? It's like you hear the word Tantra and it's suddenly like, all, all you can see is uh, <laughs> sexuality, right? Right, writhing pain. You want to be able to say, okay, we're talking about something different than that, you know? And um, and then the second move I do, which is very similar to what you do, is say, well, no. And neo tantra is its own tradition, and it has its own integrity, it has its own history, and it has its own, you know, virtues potentially and also you know there's some really scary liabilities <laughs> that have played out as well and so being being really open-eyed about all of that but it's yeah and i i feel this way about a lot of traditions even a lot of new age spirituality they're they didn't come out of nowhere and even though they're sometimes involve romanticization and projection and that kind of thing and, and cause like conflations or this inability to make important distinctions. That kind of orientation, that perennialist spiritual or orientation has its own history and integrity and is worth studying in its own regard and, and appreciating in its own regard. And um, scholars like Jeffrey Kripal's work as for me, a kind of a really good way of thinking through that yeah, so, uh, Jeff, Jeff, religiosity, yeah. Jeff Kripal comes up a lot and I, I, I really need to check out more of his stuff I have listened to a couple of interviews he did and I, I really liked it yeah. um, so um, the the other thing I wanted to just sort of that you've asked if you could just say something a little bit about how Tantra kind of pushed off from some of the uh, traditions that were around at the time um, that were, yeah, I think, and the reason why I'm interested in this is I think I, in my own practice, um, kind of went down a little bit down the Vedanta wormhole um, and a little bit of the, and, and a lot of the kind of Buddhist tradition uh, as well. There's, th these are all very, uh, large fields so you know Buddhism is huge um, and so is Vedanta but there, um, there's quite a prevalent uh, mood in there which is kind of world negating um, so it's kind of privileging uh, emptiness over form perhaps or you might if we were to talk about this in Shiva Shakti terms um, uh, privileging Shiva um, uh, and that empty um, formless I amness over uh, uh, <clears throat> over the over the world of form and um, that is a slightly kind of yeah world negating view and uh, in my own practice that kind of like dried up after a while and lost its it, it was really exciting to begin with but then I started to feel a little bit dead honestly um, and the 
so tantra seems to be uh, a, a, like very much world affirming so you, you abhinava gupta who you've mentioned you know re- was into loads of different things you know really uh and in him being the sort of cen- central figure in, in in classical tantra that was um really embraced everything in life you know was just in, in living life to the full but with the very very clear understanding of shiva and emptiness uh, you know at the same time so it's um yeah so uh, could you do better than me <laughs> how how it pushed off from the, the the religious mood of the time um yeah sure um so the th- interesting thing about tantra classical tantra is that um it's a complex uh it's a, a kind of turn that happens within multiple traditions and multiple religions so you have a turn that happens within buddhism a tantric turn you have a term that happens within the early Shaiva religion, which is, you know, a religion devoted to the deity Shiva. And similarly, you have a turn in Jainism. Um, and so you have this tantric turn. And each inflection of that turn is distinctive to those, to the, the horizon, the kind of the milieu, right, that that, tra- that, that tradition uh, is in, and the kind of backward horizon, its own history. So Mahayana Buddhists who go through this turn are looking back, you know, or like the fledgling Buddhist tantrikas are looking back on Mahayana Buddhism and they're looking back on Theravada Buddhism. The fledgling Shaiva tantrikas are looking back on Patanjali, Sankhya, um, Vedanta, the Upanishads, and the Vedic religion, you know, uh, and the Dharma literature. That's kind of, that's their horizon. And the Jains are looking back on the earlier Jain scriptures and the early or Jain ascetic traditions. And so each one of the each one of them is responding to a different background. And you know, but there's there is this pattern, I think, which you're describing, which is um, although there are ascetics within tantric traditions, um, one of the distinctions is it's not primarily an ascetic tradition. Even from the beginning, it's clear, you know, after the very earliest roots that this is, uh, a, this is a way of religious life that one is initiated into that is open to householders. And so part of it is you could track this sociologically, and then you can track, it, track this cosmologically as well. Like, what's the nature of the world, and how does that relate to practice? Um, but what, yeah, so when you say pushing against, there's a lot of things that are pushing, these new traditions are pushing against mm-hmm. or pushing back on. Um, and one of them is um, a more transcend, you know, a transcendent model and in a certain anxieties you can see in earlier monastic traditions around things like desire <laughs> uh, and, um, all these other elements of human life, the body, right? Uh, embodiment, um, the, the role of the mind. You know, a lot of these traditions are about, um, they're sessative to use a nice term, right? Uh, there's a nice distinction between sessative yeah. forms of meditation and numinous, right? And so I can go well, more could, into- Could you just unpack, 
unpack yeah. the sensitive. So does that mean as in cessation? As in cessation. Nearly Cowper type thing. Yeah, like if you look at, um, if you look, for example, at the logic of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, the, the goal is ultimately cessation of, you know, one's in being embedded or identified with the manifest world of mind and matter. And so nirodha means cessation. That's really what the goal is. It's a cessative path. Um, and, you know, early- that, that's, a, that's a term that crops up a lot in um, Buddhist literature. You know, yeah. that, that, that's, you know that, that yeah. the type of Buddhist literature that's very common, commonly read in the West nowadays, you know, cessation, you know, pops, crops up. Yeah, yeah. And nirvana means extinction as well. Yeah. Similar uh, connotation. And we find in the Pali Canon, the same word nirodha that Patanjali is using. And so it's, yeah, you, know, you could say it's a part of a deeper spiritual logic, which is about going beyond, right? All form, you know, to use the way the way you were describing it earlier. Um, and of course, what one dissolves into is going to be distinct across different traditions and how that's conceived. But that really is kind of an end point, <laughs> right? That's the culmination of the path. And numinous, this is a distinction that Stuart Sarbacher uses in his book, the, the, sessative, the numinous and the sessative. Uh, Samadhi is the name title of the book. It's a really good framework. The numinous has to do with a whole other body of things that we find in pre-tantric traditions. Like in the Buddhist literature, there's descriptions of at the final stages of the arupya um, jhanas. So like the formless meditations or uh, yeah, dhyanas in Sanskrit or jhana in Pali, you have the, the arising of all these powers, like the ability to recall your past lives, right? Or the ability to know the minds of other beings or the ability to become very small or to be very heavy. These are all, or, or, you know, exquisite experiences of radiance or unending, you know, capacity to know or omniscience, right? All of these are numinous experiences. And the Buddha will say, you know, the, in a lot of different contexts, it's like, don't get stuck here, right? This is a penultimate, this is a non-ultimate uh, set of experiences. But nonetheless, they include them and they all recognize that they're, they're a part of the path, you know, whether and, uh, you know, whether they're a part of the goal or they're just byproducts, right, of, of a deeper process of liberation. But you find, in, for example, in the Mahabharata, this idea of becoming a godlike yogi and having like this bala, this like power and, and being able to actually, the Mahabharata describes being able to inhabit multiple bodies at the same time. Uh, and control right. them all of them like, will. And so they like that blue guy in um Watchmen. Actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like Dr. Manhattan, was that his name? I yeah, I think so. I'm I haven't been tracking Watchmen as closely. Okay. <laughs> I, I like the Marvel universe a little more, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just they was uh, I just watched the one movie. Yeah. Oh nice, nice. Yeah. Um so you know. You could say that these are more about this worldly power in different ways and they have a numinous quality right there's like they're like awesome and radiant and like imminent like all of these features are are part of this modality of awakening and 
Tantra just takes that, you know, takes that and runs with it. And in fact, early Tantras are, they don't care so much about liberation. <laughs> They're like, that's lesser, right? It's, it's actually about empowerment. Uh, and then, of course, by the time of Abhinavagupta, the tradition's more developed. Um, liberation is recentered, you know, and those are, but still, um, there's a shift in notion of what liberation is. And this kind of comes maybe to the point as well specifically the emergence of this idea, which we also actually see arise in Vedanta, of jiva, uh, jivan mukti, or live, liberation while being embodied or while living, right? And so it's not some post-mortem state, right? That only happens when the body falls away or, um, and so, and then in tantric traditions, there's also specifically in these traditions called the Kaula traditions, there's this, um, there's a, a kind of oscill oscillation between transcendence and uh, transmutation. That's quite beautiful. Meaning, and I think you see this as well in tantric Buddhism, um, you, you do need to disembed from limited identifications. That actually, that move of, being able to make your previous uh, locus of identity an object of awareness and disembed from that to kind of let go of that as the ceiling of your identity is still a really important part of tantric traditions, right? Which you see in these tran transcendently oriented tradition, you know, earlier traditions. But then it doesn't end with this like final resting in the transcendent reality. There's then another movement and Alexis Sanderson describes this really eloquently as the, um, the pervasion of the transcended, meaning all of the structures that have been transcended are suddenly flooded with that, that, uh, that reality. It kind of pours through them mm -hmm. and transmutes them into the itself. And here we find a lot of alchemical metaphors, actually, in the tradition that are quite exquisite. And so it's like you still have all of the, the shape and form of and reality and tangibility and beauty and maybe even tragedy and intensity of life, but it's suddenly shining in a completely new light that's kind of flooded um, one's perspective. And that being the final movement, right? It's, it's actually about that process. It's not about an exit strategy. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's quite exquisite. I kind of, that was a very wending. Yeah, um, no, it's good. So that, that in a way that laid out the path of the, 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 the way I wanted to go with the rest of our conversation, um, that you, you've got these kind of um, polarities of the transcending and the uh, imminent or Maybe we might call it the numinous, the transcending and the numinous. Yeah, we're happy to go with that. Yeah, the, yeah. the there's so many different terms we could use, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, let's say so. If uh, you could say, um, uh, well, yeah, they, those two, those two poles. Um, you know, I love the one. So one of the things I, I uh, and you, to correct me if I'm wrong here um love when i first encountered the, this sort of tantric view of kind of looking at 
the uh, experience um, as this kind of uh, grand polarity of um, transcendence and imminence or emptiness and form, Shiva and Shakti, um, that it's like you, you kind of reduce everything down to these two um, interacting poles that are always in um, some dynamic relationship and never quite collapsed into one. But at the same time, there is this kind of third move where they become, they, uh, they, 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 well, become one. I mean, it's very difficult to, dis to, dis to describe in, in, in words. And we'll get to, so I wanted to sort of go from a third person perspective to a second person perspective to the first person perspective in, the, in this way. But um, okay. they sort of mysteriously, Shiva and Shakti although being distinct poles and almost polar opposites uh, are also one in the, uh, at the same time. And, um, you know, the kind of nearest thing I've come to it conceptually that you can think, you can, you can think of it outside um, in a kind of slightly third person way is a Mobius strip. Mm -hmm. you, you know, the Mobius strip is so it's for people listening or watching. It's like, imagine a loop of tape, imagine cutting it doing a half turn and then sticking it back together it, and it actually it's a one-sided shape you can run your finger along the surface until you meet the same place where you let with your finger um so it looks like it's two-sided but it's actually one-sided it has no uh, no other side to it and um um so, but that, um, so tantric, um, the reason why I, I wanted to explore these sort of three perspectives on Shiva and Shakti, and we, we ought to get into defining exactly what Shiva and Shakti are in a minute, is that Tantra seems to be very playfully moves around these three perspectives. It's quite a liminal um, tradition that it's sort of one minute you're talking about um, these deities in the third person. Uh, and then then the next you know the next minute you're kind of doing a deity practice where you're in relationship with them and then the next minute uh is you're actually becoming those deities and your your entire identity is made up of them um and they are in relationship inside you but then you are them in relationship but then you're also one totality so it's kind of it really um you know, I, I think that's, it's a little bit hard. It's, 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 there's a slipperiness to it because it's, it kind of moves around these perspectives so freely and, and unashamedly, um, which makes it a little bit hard to, to tie down. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't even know where I started or where I ended with that, but um, is there anything, <laughs> anything you wanted to say about, about any of that, as you said? Yeah, I think just like a very small caveat that when we speak about classical Tantra um, and we're speaking about um, Shiva and Shakti in this dynamic relationship you're describing uh, of kind of unity and polarity and dialogical, dialogical unity or something, um, that um, really we're speaking about non-dual Shaiva Tantra um, and which becomes philosophized 
uh, in this tradition called Pratyabhigna recognition. There is a whole, just it's a small caveat, but it's important that there's a whole Shaiva tantric tradition that's dualistic, that doesn't even, where the goddess is like invisible. Shakti is, is like minimalized and it's really Sadashiva at the center. And that's called Shaiva Siddhanta. And that, that's actually a, a, a very important tantric tradition in, in Indian history. In fact, one that was more well-established uh, socially and politically than non-dual Shaiva Tantra. Um, so non-dual Shaiva Tantra, Shiva Shakti. Yeah. Um, so Shiva is um, sometimes identified as Prakasha, the light of consciousness, the light of manifestation, and Shakti as Vimarsha which is that consciousness's ability to be aware of itself, a self-reflexive awareness. And that happens through the dynamism of action and knowing, uh, cognition and action, not of an individual cognition act as such, but as the kind of motive power of that that sustains every single cognitive act in the action of creating the whole universe, which does arise freely in the gesture of play i think you kind of touched on this idea of playfully right yeah. meaning it's there's there's no compulsion for this universe to manifest it's literally just the complete liberated expression of play it doesn't have a particular end in mind it's not instrumentalizing it's not goal oriented right it's just like literally just doing it for its own sake as a natural expression like when someone dances right or when someone creates art or music right? Um, so Shakti is the power, the energy, the dynamism, any place where you have, and that, that becomes form, right? That kind of condenses down into form, but is also the very substance of like, you know, any kind of movement or time or, you know, uh, imagination or activity. And okay, so you have on the surface and a kind of polarity. So, just, so, so Shakti is a goddess or the goddess? Well, or, there's many what, yeah. goddesses and um, which are forms like that could be worshipped that are expressions of Shakti. In this non-dual Shaiva view, it's the goddess, not a goddess. It's the goddess yeah. energy. Um, and, and in fact, one being amongst many is not what we're talking about. We're talking about like the, the energy behind all beings in, from the most rarefied divine being to the most mundane. So uh, in Shiva, similarly, is not just a deity amongst many, right? It's in, in, these, in this non-dual philosophy, the, the very conception of deity is radically revised. Um, in the earlier traditions, you have an idea of deity separate from universe, separate from self, right? That one uh, propitiates. In these traditions, the deity is the panentheistic reality. <laughs> that is the core of consciousness that animates everything, right? That is the self of all beings. And that is the, the very substance of this uh, universe it's the technically speaking the material and the instrumental cause of the universe and to speak about that right 
um, they use these two aspects, right? Because there is a reality to the deity that is transcends this universe as well. That's why it's panentheistic. And so, you know, it's almost Shiva and Shakti. As soon as you hear those words, it's like Tantra, right? You, you see someone with snakes around their neck and blue skin. You see, you know, Shakti, you see all these different forms, right? That's not what these philosophers are talking about. They're, they're actually making a comprehensive theological argument for the very nature of reality, right? And they're using these terms technically, not to refer to, you know, anthropomorphic deities that have myths related to them. Of course, they're aware of those myths and they draw on those, that imagery and that symbolism, and that enriches the tradition in a very beautiful way. But Shiva and Shakti is like consciousness and its power to create, you know. So that 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 would be that last statement there is is the first person experience, the first person singular experience of there is no other. Full yes. Um, the, yeah. And so you're kind of that there's and this kind of. Um, Yes, it's why it, be, it gets difficult when they, with this non-dual stuff that, yeah, you know, we've got, as you say, you know, you might be reading a non-dual uh, tantric text and they're kind of pulling in this imagery from these uh, mythic deities and gods and goddesses and stuff, um, as you said, using them to illustrate and their points and drawing on the metaphors that and and uh, and cultural history of the of that people will understand, you know, uh, yeah. to make a point. Um, yeah. But it, it's it, it can be a bit confusing when you're when you're reading these tantric texts when you don't understand that. Like that the way where you've articulated there is really helpful. Um, yeah. That's what I mean slightly by this kind of liminality of the of the tradition that they'll kind of use whatever they they need to 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 because what they're really interested in is you and me and anybody else realizing who we are that that we are that um yeah. and um and i think one of the things that um you know it's, it is it, great about the, the tantric tradition one of the things i love about it is it is it is it really seeks to harmonize these three perspectives that in um the view is something that's brought up a lot in in tantra has been very important that being this kind of third person philosophy you know or the theological um explorations um and uh they take that really seriously and then also you do deity yoga which might be more of a sort of second person practice where you are visualizing um shiva or shakti uh well i mean that's something i would love you to explore a bit more that actual deity process but then you know it kind of culminates in you be, being that that deity those deities um and the bit that i'd love to you to kind of unpack a bit is, is how they become one in some sort of supreme being at this which you know that that's a bit like you know I, uh that buddhist statement in the heart sutra that emptiness is form and form is emptiness that just like 
you can never wrap your mind around it. But as a first person experience, it's just a simple fact. And mm. yeah. um, so if you could please um, just say a bit about deity yoga as done in the non-dual tantric way, if that's possible, please. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, like maybe describe like you know run us through what a, what a what a practice session might be like where, where you do that sure sure um there's a couple of registers to to how deities uh how one establishes a second person relationship to a deity um and it's all founded on an initial identification with the deity even if you're kind of doing a dualistic, ritualistic worship of the deity. Um, there's this really important dictum, Shiva Bhutva Shiva Myajeta, having become Shiva, worship Shiva. So there's an initial identification with Shiva, and it's seen as a purifying and empowering identification. And uh, I can share a little bit about this. It's called the Nitya Karma, the daily ritual that a tantric initiate would do. Um, and of course, this, this ritual is actually really quite exquisite and it's centered on tantric worship of the deity. Um, but in the kind of, you know, more and more esoteric traditions, it's less ritualistic and it's, there's like quicker, more efficient ways of communing with deity self. But nonetheless, I think it's an important kind of structure. So first you would systematically identify with the deity. And this involves a practice <clears throat> called nyasa, which is the deposition or installation of mantras. And so you actually touch your body and you say different mantras for different parts of the body. And those mantras correspond to the body of the deity. Uh, there's this idea in, in Shaiva Tantra of mantra devata, mantra deities, meaning they're composed of these like really subtle, potent sounds called you know, mantras. And so by touching your body and infusing the body of the deity where your body is, you're actually transforming your body into a mantra body. And that's the kind of body that the deity can then enter. And so that initial entrance is this really powerful, you begin with a merger or an identification with the deity. And there's a bunch of other processes of visualization that happen. You imagine, you know, like flooding the body, body with nectar. You imagine, you use different mantras to dissolve your previous uh, understanding of the body or your image of the body and make space for this new mantric body. This is all called antaryaga, internal worship, worshiping the deity as self in an embodied way. And then it's followed by bahiryaga, where you worship the deity by projecting it into some medium. And it might be a mandala, a deity installing diagram. There's a number of different uh, mediums that one could install the deity in. And then you worship the deity externally after do first doing it internally. And so it's a very second person thing, right? You install the deity with these mantras for the different parts of the deity's body. You make offerings of uh, liquid and flowers and incense. Um, you, you're, you're using mantra the whole time. You're using visualization in your own prana fused with mantras to install the deity. This is for initiates only, usually, right? This is once you've been initiated into the tantric lineage. And then um, you end with 
stotras singing the praises of the deity and beautiful hymns and japa repetition of the mantra that's a basic structure we see ac across many different tantric rituals and then there's different inflections if you're aiming for certain siddhis or kama karmas like uh comp like rituals for trying to achieve certain goals or aims and the the second the part where you're worshiping the deity externally is should be you know dripping with devotion <laughs> you know it really is this like deity as other deity as thou right there's all these ways you're addressing the deity and it follows a basic structure you also see in the vedas of like uh, welcoming a guest and entertaining a guest <laughs> actually you know like washing their feet you know would you like some chai and parlay ji you know or whatever <laughs> okay now the other place where this comes up this dialectic is in devotional hymns which we see in, in the tantric tradition we see these exquisite devotional hymns and then you call out to the deity in vocative forms like oh shambhu right shambho or oh bhairava or oh devi right and um you invoke there's all these hymns that play like Utpaladeva, Abhinavagupta's Grand Guru has all, um, actually, yeah, Grand Guru has all of these like ways in which he's, he's playing with the idea that I'm, I'm praising you, but you're not separate from me. Mm. Right? It's like you're separate and you're not separate at the same time. And, and there's these puns on that, you know, like he, 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 he has all these kinds of wordplay on that. It's almost like they're aware that the very structure of praise stuti or stotra is dualistic and they're they're aware of that and yet instead of shying away from it they embrace it right they embrace the conversational nature of this right they embrace the relational aspect because they don't want a non-duality that's going to get rid of relationship i think i think one of the things that makes me think is that um that that like one might imagine a kind of a finality in in non in the non-dual experience that, yeah. that the tantricers don't want that they, they don't want an end to this it, it's so sublime that and 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 exciting and i mean it, um and and just this kind of unfathomable journey um that that to want to kind of close it down they, yeah, they don't want to close it down. So they have to keep this kind of like, you're like you're saying like, and it's a little bit of a joke because you know you're doing it. It's a little bit like, um, yeah, but you're sort of doing it on purpose so that you don't close things down by- Exactly. Yeah, that's, a, that's I like that. That's definitely within the spirit of these texts. Uh, I, you know, having, having read them now in the original language for, you know, 12 years and, and studied them for a long time before that I, that's definitely true to the spirit of these texts for sure um and one text in particular you might want to check out is the parachi shikavivarna because it actually it takes up this issue of the pronouns and specifically um first person and then the goddess because it's a dialogue between devi or bhairavi and bhairava and she's asking him these questions and she's doing it because she wants to be illuminated by this knowledge. And of course, we're all listening in, 
<laughs> it's like the way that these tantras are structured it's like they're having a conversation but it's really for us you know it's like yeah. there's a part of this broader audience right even like with the the idea like uh and once it was heard in the buddhist tradition right and they tell a story of the buddha speaking with someone it's really it's we're we're all a part of that audience right it's this expanding audience and um Abhinav Gupta raised this question uh, about how, how is it that the goddess is ignorant and where is she speaking from? And how is it, you know, if she's one with Shiva, how is it that she's a, a taken this, how they've taken this relationship, right? Of questioner and answer, this kind of uh, second person relationship. And then what's the third person? And basically, um, it's, it's exquisite. And I could say more about the first person too, uh, as the fusion of Shiva and Shakti, but um, you can bookmark that. But basically he says that, you know, this dialogical, it represents a phase within uh, the unfurling of the universe and also a phase within the awakening. Those are twin movements, right? The unfurling or the creative process is a twin movement to the awakening or the recognition process, right? Just going in different directions. Right. So there's this phase, um, which is called parapara, or it can be translated as um, unity and diversity, or like diversifying unity. And so he, there's this level of the goddess where she's, she's speaking to him and they're experiencing the polarity, but they're also experiencing the unity at the same time and that unity is never broken and then when you go to the third person that's where like it really does like a more uh congealed duality comes into place right and there really is a sense of being separate but at this phase of like intimacy there's actually uh unity and diversity parapara and alexis anderson describes this particular phase or this um, and this uh, corresponds to a goddess in the Trika tradition as well, as uh, or or beda beda is the Sanskrit term for this, um, which means something like unity and diversity, um, where it allows for what we're talking about, which is like the full um, luminous imminence of the manifest world, with a kind of threading through it of a sense of unity right, and arresting in unity while enjoying and experiencing and relishing and savoring this whole uh, life experience. And um, he describes it as aesthetic, uh, Sanderson, when he talks about this level, there's like an aesthetic dimension. It's like the aesthetic, because, because of that unity that threads through everything, one, one is able to experience the duality as like an adornment right? It's something that adds beauty to the universe and not something to be completely uh, destroyed or wiped out, right? Yeah. And yeah, it so reminds me of the that kind of Tibetan Buddhist iconography of sort of, um, you know, the adornments that those uh, empty deities wear. You know, they sort of have deities that are literally empty deities, but they, but they wear this sort of clothing that's all floating and, you know... Yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful image. That's an exquisite image. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's 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 a a kind of 
in a Buddhist aesthetic flavor. That would be one way of, of, of portraying this. And in a more of a, a kind of Nandul Shaiva, it might be like adornments on the fullness. But <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, one, so so overflowing one, flood of you know <laughs> one one thing i'd love to to hear you ex, uh, uh unpack is um so there's like there's 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 a view of um let, let's say formless consciousness or um we might might use shiva in, in in this context if if you'd allow it um but do do put in some caveats if you need to <laughs> Um, being a kind of passive HQ that receives the this is this in this in the kind of Western scientific model you've got kind of con naked consciousness just sort of is a, is a, is this HQ that receives sensory data so it's, it's like there'd be a little bit like Shakti flows to this central point but um, I was reading. Um, Christopher Wallace's, but it might have been the Recognition Sutras or um, his Tantra Illuminated, or was it Illumined? But um, great, both great books, but love them. But he was saying how in the, the, the this non-dual tantric view, the consciousness of Shiva extends outwards to touch objects. So like fl flows outwards, rather than being this kind of passive point that receives everything in towards it if mm. that makes sense and i mm. may have misunderstood what i read but it was like when i read that i suddenly thought i just lived with the assumption that um uh information flows towards this kind of central point rather than the other way around that the this, this kind of empty emptiness flows actually can move outwards extends and touches things and and it, mm. it was just a complete 180 flip on the way I'd, have, I'd spent my entire life thinking about the relationship of consciousness and information mm. um, and I may have got it totally wrong um, <laughs> but, which is why I wanted to bring it up with you yeah happy to speak about that um you know I think there's 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 a there's a little nuance there's a lot of nuances here that make it are, are places where i think it gets really interesting and there's these shakta traditions where they see the goddess as higher than shiva like the krama tradition that's that you may have heard of it's uh, centered around this teaching and for abhinavagupta around 12 kalis and kala sankarshani and then the trika tradition this other goddess tradition um and i i think those are interesting pieces to this this topic um, but I will say to to try to address your question that um, you know Shiva is again if we think about well what are the kind of mythological roots that are now being informing this understanding of the nature of consciousness one is that Shiva is the cr a creator deity meaning the universe flows out of this deity Right, and in the myth, in the more mythological Puranika, Shiva doesn't necessarily. It's not his being that becomes the universe. It's rather some other stuff, you know, Mahaprakriti or Maya or something that he's using to make the universe. Right, um, but once you get in this non-dual realm, and Shiva is no longer personified, but is now consciousness itself. Mm. 
there's still this nature of Shiva as creator, meaning everything, everything is pouring out of this consciousness, like, like emerging from it, like a heart, like the heart. It's the center and core of all phenomena, right? And so that might be something of, of this idea of it's, it's that's what's, which is, you know, becoming everything and touching itself, really. Uh, Vimarsha, I mean, it's really sh the Shakti that is the, the, the dynamic part that's touching. Vimarsha, this, this idea of um, the self-awareness, which is all action and all agency, is um, described as vimarsha, and vimrsh means actually to touch. One of the meanings is to touch. And there's a way in which it's this beautiful, like um, there's this kind of sensation, right? This way in which this consciousness is like, is touching itself, right? And embracing itself in well, contact. I just, just, just interject there with, uh, um, when I heard about the consciousness mudra, yeah. which is where you touch your forefinger yeah. to your thumb. Yeah. And, it's, and um, that is just beautiful. When I came across that, when I heard that, I was like, wow. Yeah. yeah. That, it, yeah. It, that's kind of in the same kind of thing as what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's a beautiful, you know, symbol of, of what we're talking about, that, that, that touch. You know, um, like you said earlier, if there's only Shiva and Shakti really in this kind of infinite play between them, then it's consciousness exploring itself ad infinitum, right? We are just that process, right? We've identified with a fragment of it, right? We've identified with one just small part of this much deeper process that we're all part of. And part of it is shifting the locus of our identity from that fragment to the core of that process. That shift in that identity to the core of that process means we just see like our own minds and all things, right? As just another instance of consciousness touching itself, right? Uh, knowing itself, engaging itself, right? Exploring itself. But it's, it's, it's blooming infinitely. And so, you know, even in the recognition sutras, right? The difference, it, you're using the imminence of the movements of your own mind, the way your mind is creating a microcosm of experience, right? The way a thought literally births and creates a world of experience, sustains it and then dissolves. And so by seeing that process, by seeing the flow of the mind as chitti shakti, right? Not just as my mind, or, right? But as literally, a kind of crystallization or, you know, uh, palpitation of this deeper fluttering of this whole universal consciousness uh, universe project, right? <laughs> then that's, that itself becomes the shift. It no longer is, is uh, taking consciousness in, and um, exclusively wrapping it around one set of experience. And, and then that being like focused on the content Right. And everything that comes out of that, like the whole conceptual mind, the whole life story. Right. It's actually saying, no, all of that is the shimmering of this Chitti Shakti as sh as consciousness Shiva is experiencing himself in and through his Shakti. Right. Um, and he can see himself through her. It's like she's like a mirror. Right. Yeah. It makes me feel like. For so. 
for Shiva or to to experience himself, he needs to have a needs to have this other come out, the, the Shakti, um, because there's a kind of that there is the the recognition of being conscious, awake, um, that I am, is is kind of inherently satisfying, um, and almost infinitely intriguing. Like it, it just it's the gift that keeps on giving, but but at the same time there, uh, I and, and and this is just in my own experience. I've found that. Um, there's there's something else that that wants to come out, you know. That that there's this desire for more, mm-hmm. and that's a kind of move where, um, you know, slightly departing from this neurod, um, transcendent, pure transcendentalist traditions, um, which is still really really prevalent, um, you know, a- around the world and in in the West, and um, um, that. And uh, <clears> that this, uh, oh, I just kind of kind of lost it there. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, to, to to kind of expand the the possibility of experiencing oneself, you know, needs to have this outflowing, and then so. So I mean, it, it's confusing because we're jumping around between first, second, and third person, and deities, and non-dual, and there is no other than you, and, and all this kind of thing, and it's all already. But um, so in that, it's kind of so she, so Shakti, kind of it like flows out of Shiva to increase the possibilities of of experience or something, uh, or con. Of, uh, to increase the, the um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's uh... well. One way, one way of trying to navigate it is, um, you know, talking about the union of Shiva and Shakti, which you were. Yeah, to. yeah, yeah. So I mean, that 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 is the is a great mystery. How you know that experience is a singular thing. You know, the the fact of your direct experience. Is, is a single moment or a single totality. It's just a fact and, and nothing, nothing fancy, you know, just the bare fact experiencing being you right now is, is a singular thing. Um, but at the same time, you can notice your awakeness being slightly distinct from the forms, but they're never separate, never, they're never, you never get one without the other, and and even in those kind of neurod or or very very deep emptiness experiences, you know, I do wonder whether people are, are genuinely having an experience of nothingness, you know, because it, well, or it's just very 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 subtle shakti that has been experienced, and it's just like you can kind of talk about it as if oh, you know, in deep dreamless sleep. There's just nothingness, but yeah, you know, really, like, I mean, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Okay, I th- I think one way of appreciating that in the non-dual Shaiva view, which is very subtle, and I think it's you know, appreciate uh, 
you know, our listeners attempt to stay with us. And, and you know, it's, it's very difficult to translate this in, into simple terms, but um, there is also an elegance to it. So one of, there's this text uh, called the Bodha Vilasa, which I actually translated with Christopher Wallace. And I think he shared it with his community. It's by this um, tantric master named Rasvanata, who lived, uh, we actually can date him to between 900 and 950 CE. And it has another name called the uh, Dvaya Sampati Vartika, which means this kind of commentary on these verses from the Vijnana Bhairava, there's this pair of verses. Um, but it also means really the um, Dvaya sam, uh, Sampati is like the kind of attainment of the two, the Dvaya. And the two are uh, Shivan Shakti. But the way that they're presented is based on this really beautiful esoteric teaching that uh, the, the letter A is Shiva and the, the phoneme A and the, the letter Ha or Ham is Shakti. And the first person pronoun in Sanskrit language is Aham, okay? And so it's their way, they're playing on this, but there's, there's also codes between what A and Ha refer to. A refers to Anuttara, which means the unsurpassable or the, the ultimate reality. And it's kind of like what we've been talking about. It's that which is Akula. It's, it's not the imminent, it's the transcendent, right? Akula means the embodiment or like the, the kind of imminent world. And Akula means that which is, it completely transcends that. And Ha stands for Visarga. It's a really important term. It means the emanation or the emission or the creative flux or flow of the universe. It also means interesting uh, ejaculation. And there is some sexual imagery in the background here of this Yamala, this union. And they use terms that, that have this, and there's like frictive union between these two realities, right? And um, when, if, I think what, if we talk about the transcendent past that you've been referring to in that orientation, it's like, they're just going for the uh, right? But it's not the whole I. It's just the a part. It's not the aham, right? The full I has to include for these shaivas the totality of the cosmos and everything in it, right? And so this idea... So that would be, if we were to say that in the English phrase, I am, that's the am part, yeah? Is, is, am, I, am I forcing... A parallel yes, but, but it, no but the question is what is the am refer to mm. and how far does this i extend right is it an i that's just untouched by all phenomena right or is it an i that somehow includes and embraces right and enfolds all everything right the whole imminent universe and it's the latter right and this is why they call it purnaham ta purnaham ta is this really important term and purna means full, fullness, or completeness. But it's translated as all-encompassing all or all-embracing by Alexis Sanderson for this very important reason, because it's a sense of I that's not outside or beyond the universe. It's a sense of I in which this entire universe is arising, right? It's an all-encompassing I. So it's seeing the fullness of everything we're experiencing in this world as arising within this I, right? 
And that's the fusion of uh and hum, right? That's the fusion of anuttara, the ultimate, and visarga, the kind of dynamism of the whole creative process into a single reality, paradoxically, right? Um, and yet um, somehow just the simple fact, as, as you're saying, right? Just the simple fact of what it is. Um, is that helpful? Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know when when one when we describe when we're talking about it in in the sort of philosophical sense or third person sense, it re you it, you're just left with paradox and this kind of ill um, unsolvable equation that will not it will not collapse down. But yeah. in your first person experience, it's just it's a simple fact. You don't need to do anything to make it what it is one of the things i think one of the things i'd heard you say in an interview before which i really liked was and this made me think that it's so important to 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 think carefully about what words we're using um so you hear a lot of people say free from so you know freedom is being free from something um mm -hmm. And, you know, you might say enlightenment is freedom from everything. But I've heard you say free for, um, which I thought was great, was brilliant. And it's it, that, that, that there's a kind of, yeah, to, to, uh, there's, a, there's a really nice distinction there. And I think it, it relates to what you're saying there, mm -hmm. that, that to, be, mm -hmm. to be free for all of, you know, so... Shiva is free for Shakti in a, in a, in a way, or um, or the reverse. Shakti is free for Shiva, and it's this kind of generative um, statement. It's a generative word or terminology, um, and yeah. uh, rather than a kind of like retreating type of movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um that comes from his book. That was written by Alex Watson, who's actually um, a, a British scholar of Shaiva philosophy, and Dominic Goodall and Anjaneya Sharma. It's called the it's a translation, critical edition and translation of the Paramoksha Nirasakarika, which is the definition of moksha according to the other traditions. And it presents some fascinating Sanskrit work, which presents 20 views of moksha and then refutes them all. <laughs> And then says, okay, this is the true meaning of moksha. But it gives this incredible spectrum of different views on, on moksha. And in the introduction, uh, Alex Watson uses this rubric of freedom from or freedom for. And you can see in different models of moksha that they are one or the other. I mean, freedom pretty much threads all of them. <laughs> it's, and it's, it, could, I mean, it could be as basic as freedom from suffering, right? one of the most basic understandings of moksha is dukkanta, like the end of dukkha, right? Um, but yeah, freedom is not... A... Then I think, I think of G Jesus was free for suffering, in a way, as an yeah. archetype, you know? Yeah, exactly, not free, for, free of suffering, yeah. But, yeah. But he, was, he was free for it, you know? Free, yeah. free in it. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, it sounds like we both appreciate that. And um, sounds like we both also have had tastes and exposures to, or I can share with you that I have, you know, mm -hmm. to 
I've had that more transcendent impulse be really at the core of my spiritual life. <laughs> and I've, I've felt the pain of the subtle pain of that, you know, hmm. uh, or the fracture, the fragmentation of that. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's interesting. It, it, I, I love the way you say it's painful because uh, honestly, that was my experience too, that one wouldn't think that that would, you know, when you're kind of like floating off, you know, yeah. pain would be an issue. It would even be a factor. Yeah. Maybe like, you know, another word is like numbing or something, you know? Yeah. yeah. But no, exactly. It's not like pain in any normal sense, you know, and it's not like numbness in any normal sense either. It's, it's like a kind of numbness of the soul or something, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's, and I think I still have a deep, the reason I say all of that is because I still have a really deep, healthy respect for those traditions and for that impulse. And, mm. you know, I think ultimately it's not a great final destination, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's, it is real. And, you know, oh, we, were yeah, talking, yeah, yeah. we were talking about like, is there was some subtle Shakti or some imminence? Like I actually, sometimes I think there is actually a reality, a dimension of reality where it is utterly beyond all form forever, you know, all the time, you know, like <laughs> there's a, no subtle like manifestation there at all. Um, I mean, that's just from my own depths of experience and study of the tradition. Like I, I actually, I have that sense a little, you know, and I also feel that it's missing this piece, which in some senses, the ha it's missing the the imminence it's missing the um the creativity and it's missing the life process and that what you know that stuff that side of the equation is actually the source of so much meaning <laughs> it's the source of like it's so it does such better justice to why is there anything at all <laughs> like what is this strange thing that we're participating in you know and so for me, it's it's more philosophically satisfying. It's more ethically satisfying, you know, in terms of my own kind of moral compass. Um, it does better justice to life, you know. Um, and yet, I sometimes feel like I need a little bit of that transcend transcendent impulse, sensitive at certain moments too. I, just, yeah, I think I think it let different. The world, let the world go to hell, you know. I, yeah. <laughs> But I think at, at different moments in one's life, a bit like what you're saying with being a scholar practitioner, that, you know, you kind of, you have your natural bias, uh, but also one oscillates between them through your life. And it's like when you're kind of going, veering off a little bit too far into yeah. the imminence, the transcendence pulls you back. You know, they, yeah. these, these, that's, I, I love, you know, this polarity theory where each polarity trues up the other, mm -hmm. you know, that, 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 it's a bit like riding a bike, you know, where you feel yourself falling a little bit to the left and the right, you know, will pull you back and, and you're yeah. kind of what you're aiming for. And again, this is a terminology thing that I, I like, I prefer harmony than balance. Mm -hmm. I think, I think balance, uh, harmony has a kind of a generative quality to it, that it, it creates like a harm, you know, harmonic resonances that stack up, you know, and expand outwards. Whereas, mm -hmm. Balance is a kind of like um, slightly static uh, word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, but do, do, I'm just conscious we're just running yeah. out of time. 
and um, I mean, I've, I've loved this conversation. It's, it's everything I, I hoped it would be. Um, that just if you please could just say a little bit how you think Tantra has evolved, um, uh, you know, since it's it, it emerged roughly around the fifth century CE, that kind of time, you know, to now. Um, um, you know, what are the, some of the some of the interesting innovations that have happened? You know, that, that you think are kind of positive and beneficial. Well, I you know I mentioned this um, this kind of shift from more dualistic and ritualistic forms of tantra to a uh, modalities that are more um, non-dual in their orientation, and also that that actually corresponds with a really in, in, important process. Um, sometimes described as like the internalization of the deities and the internalization of the rituals where the outer rituals become paradigms for inner awareness practices, sometimes following their structure or sometimes just focusing on immediacy and spontaneity. That happens in the Shaiva Tantras and, and actually emerges out of the Shakta traditions uh, under uh, a turn called the Kaula turn. You could call it a turn as well within Tantra. And that um, you know, of course, the kaulas will say this is an, this is an evolution, this is an innovation, right? And the non kaulas say those people are crazy. <laughs> right? that, all that stuff is like they've gone off the deep end, and they say that. You know, Ramakanta critiques the kaulas. My own perspective, because uh, that kaula turn is at the is at the background and foundation of Abhinavagupta's writing of works like the Shiva Sutra and the Vijnana Pairava and the Spandakarika that we've come to know as the non-dual Shaivism of Kashmir, um, but also many other traditions like the Kubjika tradition, um, Goddess Kubjika, which is a tradition where the, the chakra system that we're all familiar with first emerged and which really emphasizes Kundalini as well. Also in the Sri Vidya tradition, which still flourishes in Southern India today, where they worship the Sri Chakra. Um, so all of these are informed from their very beginnings, uh, with one exception, the Sri Vidya, by this turn. And um, it's, a, it's a paradigm shift. And it's, um, it opens up the audience is one of the things it does, because it, it starts to say things like, it starts to redefine even what a mantra is and even what initiation is. So instead of having to be kind of constricted by an institutional structure, but you're initiated into this and you have to repeat this mantra, it starts to say, no, what initiation truly is, is just awakening, right? And that, that's an internal event, not a ritual action. And what the mantra is, is basically an immersion in this kind of mantric level of awareness, right? Where there's like the potency of, the power of speech in its most subtle form. And that's the power behind all mantras and all language. Um, and so that's one major shift or development. And that happens around eighth to ninth century CE, but it really develops after that. And then there's an interesting distinction, I think, when Tantra between what happens with Buddhism and Tantric Buddhism and what happens with what we call Tantric Hinduism, forms of Hinduism. Um, a lot of the traditions that I study in great depth, they become discontinued. And a lot of the aspects of them become diffuse. They kind of diffuse into 
you know, other, like into, actually into Vedanta, interestingly, like if you look at the Vedantic monasteries, they do tantric, like tantric practices into Brahminical traditions, right? You see like even my wife's uncle, um, their family, he's like a Brahmin in the kind of Brahminical Vedic tradition. And when he does worship, he's doing nyasa. He's like installing deities into mandalas and it's all based on the Veda. Yeah. So there's this diffusion and there's a few traditions that do continue unbrokenly, but they develop a lot in different ways. One is the Shaiva Siddhanta, the dualistic tradition. It becomes much more temple-based. And then the other is the Sri Vidya tradition. And it actually becomes more routinized. And um, although there's, you know, kulas or communities where they, they continue the more esoteric aspects and teachings and non-dual teachings that are truer to the kaula roots. And so the distinction between those in, in tantric Buddhism is that in, because Buddhism went to Tibet, you know, through the auspices of these waves of transmission, um, the, you know, the second one being through Padmasambhava, and you have the institutional continuity of these four Tibetan schools of Tibetan Buddhism, you have all of the texts and practices untouched and all of the modes of transmission, you know, I mean, of course they change in time, right? But there, you actually have the full tantric infrastructure, right? And when I actually go to Tibetan monasteries and, and I've, I've spent some time in them in India, for example, I'm like jealous <laughs> because it's, it's exquisite. Now, even within Tibetan tantric Buddhism, you have like the monastics and the yogis, right? Like there's these great tensions between Mila Repa and Long Champa, Champa, right? And going back to that lineage, who are like these wilderness yogis, right? Mm -hmm. And these siddhas who then like come down and they make fun of all the monks who are just, you know, good monastics following what the abbot says, right? And there's this like interplay and between like really esoteric yogi practices and then more like, um, structured uh, monastic cultures and each school is different all that's to say you know in terms of evolution um, my experience is that what happened when Abhinava Gupta was writing was like it's like a high point in tantric civilization right and in fact what I, what I see on offer <laughs> in Hindu tantra communities is like nowhere close to as sophisticated or as, you know, just because it's not is supported, right? It, it was incredibly supported. It, it was like an efflorescence of culture and in philosophy, the sophistication of which, I mean, like, give me an example, recognition sutras, right? That text seems very difficult for people who are new to this tradition, it's a very technical work and it's hard to understand. You have to read it many times, right? In the context of Shemaraja, who wrote that text, he wrote that for people who cannot understand, right? Yeah, yeah. The actual Ishwaprati being a karika. He's like, that's right. So yeah. that was the easy text. That was the primer. I think uh, Torella calls it a catechism, right? That's yeah. like the, the manual for schoolboys. <laughs> or girls right the the real stuff which i i read you know i, I work on that 
the Ishwar Pratibhyankarika in its commentaries. I've been working on them for a while. Yeah. That is like that level of tantric philosophy, I do not see in today's discourse yeah. at all. There's like scholars working on it, right? But and in terms of the living tradition, so I hope that's not a sad note, but I've got to be <laughs> yeah. honest. I got to be honest yeah. with you. So you're um, talking as a kind of a devolution, but I'm talking devolution here. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, it's, it, it, <laughs> what the, 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 the diffusion uh, that you were talking about is interesting. How you kind of notice some of this tantric philosophy cropping up in areas totally unrelated. Where, yeah. where you know it's almost like it's kind of yeah well you know to say so tibetan buddhism uh which is you know essentially a sort of tantric it had tantric roots um and that has informed uh the culture i mean it's, you know say star wars for example yeah. you know, it's, it's very much um I don't know whether explicitly, but you know, you watch Star Wars and it, it's. Oh, it, 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 Did you know the Ewoks are speaking Tibetan and. and oh, are they? Yeah. <laughs> wow. No, I didn't know that. But it. Um, so it, it. Yeah. And it, but I know it's not that kind of. Um, that it, the, the, the high point of philosophy you're talking about. Um, it, it's not necessarily that, but the kind of flavor of Tantra, um, you know, via Tibetan Buddhism and, and other memes has, has actually kind of seeped into our culture um, in a way. And it's, it's just every now and again, you kind of notice it pop up in, in, in certain bits of, um, you know, movies and, and, and those kind of things. And yeah, I don't know. No, I, I, I do think the diffusion is interesting. And in, in, um, in one could describe it as like a tantric flavor that, that you can experience in certain communities and certain teachings. And, um, and it's a part of the impact of this tantric world. And, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, and again, it's, we, we shouldn't think of tantra just in, it's really, it's not just Shaiva Tantra or Jain Tantra, right? Jain Tantric traditions are also still alive, you know? So there's, I think we can speak about it, its development in two different ways. One is like the way it's impacted things like genetically, but not, with, not within its kind of coherent initial integrity. And then actual institutional Tantric traditions that are thoroughly Tantric, right? Um, through and through. And, and they're, continued life right but uh, maybe I, I can I can say something really kind of interesting at this point uh, this is this is kind of a, a nicer note to end on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, I'm reading this text I'm working on this South Indian scholar who wrote a, a hymn not to the deity but to Abhinavagupta so we could say it's a guru stotra right he's praising Abhinavagupta and there's a lot of speculation. His name's uh, Madhuraja, and he's he's in Tamil Nadu, and he's after Abhinavagupta. There was speculation that he met Abhinavagupta in person, and he writes this beautiful visualization of Abhinavagupta, and it's described by a scholar as a pen picture. And all of the artistic representations we see of Abhinavagupta are based on this text, but no one read the rest of his text, and he actually wrote a few other texts as well, and I've been working on them. 
And what my articles that's you know forthcoming, I got to finish it first, is arguing, is that first of all, the question of whether he met him or not is not that important. But I'm I'm pretty sure, and I've, I I think I proved this really clearly that he did not meet him in person. But he had this relationship to his texts and to his mind, right? And he describes, in fact, the ways that Abhinavagupta's speech and his eloquence, like his consciousness through the vehicle of his speech, mm -hmm. has saturated his mind and his heart and awakened him completely. Now, that happened without having to actually physically meet the master. Right? Mm -hmm. That happened through a non-institutional mode of transmission. What I further show is that Abhinavagupta sets the dice, right? He, he realizes that <clears throat> the transmission of a tradition based on kind of enlightened minds transmitting their minds to others is very tenuous because there could be breaks in the tradition and you don't have an institutional structure to hold it up, right? Yeah. But he's aware that even with those breaks, at any time, that enlightened mind can reemerge, right? Even from something as simple as studying the words of an enlightened teacher, mm -hmm. right? And Madhuraja Yogin is this fascinating example of that. I mean, he, he speaks about his own realization in first-person terms, right? And it's really the, it's the kind of reenactment of the same awakening process that happened with Abhinavagupta. And so what these texts start to track is like, what are the causes and conditions or like, what are the ideal conditions where that can not only emerge, but be sustained in human communities? And there's this possibility that it doesn't require all of these outer structures. In fact, that it's because the nature of consciousness is just that because of that singular fact you were talking about, right? That trumps everything. Right? There's no external thing that needs to be arranged for that to shine forth, right? And that happens through grace, you know? Hmm. Um, and so you can have, this is important for us because it means we can have a relationship to the mind and heart of Abhinavagupta. Um, that can be incredibly illuminating. And um, that's been my experience of studying him for 10 years as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is a bit more hopeful. And it and it's like, you know, it, and it is um, that is, it's an evolution that there's this that people like you uh, and Christopher Wallace are doing these really in depth translations into English, which is being your first language, which is kind of the the lingua franca sort of of a lot of the you know most of the world, and then they're being translated into other languages, so. You know, for the first time ever, these tantric texts and the 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 original literature um, is actually available all over the world to anybody who has an internet connection or a postal address to get a, a paperback book or whatever. Yeah. You know, so that that is pretty amazing. And 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 as you say, that that is that's. That that actually touches Abhinavagupta and those authors that they penned those words, and mm -hmm. that created an unbroken causal chain. To yeah. you reading those words, it's one seamless event, um, yeah. and um, 
you know that that is that that's amazing that and and um yeah what it a great place to end and so so just um thank you so much for, for your time uh this has just been a really wonderful conversation and uh before we, we we finish where would people go to find out more about your work or anything you care about um well you know i think I have a faculty page at Naropa University, um, and I also have a Patreon where um, my colleague James Reich and I uh, translate Sanskrit texts. So, if you you could share that link in the notes, um, we basically it's called Close Readings, and we just take people through texts. We we go into a lot of the Krama texts that I was describing in so far, and actually we studied that that philosophical work which was the source for the recognition sutras as well we, we go through an entire chapter with a commentary and dive deep into that so that's been a really fun side project that i've been a part of so cool uh, yeah those are the those, those would be the main places to Excellent. Yeah. well th thank you so much ben uh i, I so appreciate it. really generous of you to 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 get to do this and uh may it benefit many people and uh, may many people find your work and connect with these amazing this amazing literature and connect back to, to that to the high point <laughs> yeah thanks for the invitation and the hospitality yeah. all right well enjoy the rest of your day lots of love i made all the music that i use in my podcasts if you'd like to hear more of my music please visit soundcloud and check out my profile 